Okay, I think it's just gone. A couple of minutes past three, so it's time to begin. So, just uh, a prologue. The Word of the Buddha classes, I have been going through those. And uh, we've uh, got to the, the last of what I have translated so far from the Word of the Buddha. So, I realized there would be two Sutta classes which I will teach before the range retreat starts. This is today and in two weeks' time. So I thought an opportunity, if you're giving two consecutive teachings, to actually to um, retranslate and refigure the Potapada Sutta. That's in the Dika Nikaya, so you won't find it in there, Paul Ainsley. You should let me know and you wouldn't have had to carry that heavy burden with you. Sorry about that. So the Potapada Sutta is in the Dika Nikaya, and that's the long discourses. Usually, uh, when I look to see what suttas we have done or what we haven't done, it's the ones which are very uh, simple, easy, short, the ones which have usually been covered. And the ones which are either very complicated or very long, these are the ones which uh, you should get missed out. Uh, but because I'm doing two consecutively this week and two weeks' time, an opportunity to do one of my favorite suttas on the Potapada. But as you see, I have uh, done the same uh, job as with the um, Word of the Buddha classes to take the uh, Pali and then to use that and to translate it, not word for word, but as best you can, phrase by phrase. Taking out much of the repetition where I feel that it is distracting and just re formatting some of the similes, to have the simile, to have the meaning, but just to keep uh, the uh, uh, different words. And if you stroll down to the very end, if you can, this is, well, I've got eight pages here. Can you scroll down to the very end, there's a little simile in the end here, which will give you the sort of things which I do. Uh, it is, okay, it's on page eight. From a cow comes milk. Have you got that one? From a cow, that's the beginning of the, okay. Now, the usual simile is from a cow comes milk, from a milk comes cream, from a cream comes ghee, from ghee comes the skimmings of ghee. And the skimmings of ghee are reckoned as the best. Now, I have seen ghee, and skimmings of ghee I haven't really seen, and for most people they don't know what ghee is. So, in using the same type of simile, you know, the cause and effect, but changing some of the, the words in there to make this, <laughs> this simile more modern. So you will find in there, from a cow comes milk, from milk comes condensed milk, and from condensed milk comes tea with sweetened condensed milk. And tea with sweetened condensed milk is said to be the best of these. <laughs> so it's using these similes, and you remember that now. Giving it a little bit more oomph and something you can sort of understand. There's more of those in this sutta. And the whole idea of these similes is, in the time of the Buddha, 2,500 years ago, people would have understood those similes. 
understood them really well, but sometimes some of it is missed out these days. So anyway, that's coming up later on, probably in two weeks' time. So now we can actually go to the very beginning of this Potapada Sutta. And this is very much about uh, just you know, what is consciousness, how it arises and how it finishes off. And with that, you know, the idea of what is a self, what, you know, who are you? What is this thing which is listening to me right now? So this was some of those things which was very important you know, for those people who were listening to a sutra like this. They weren't so much concerned about you know, how to get on with one another or how to find a wealth or safety. They just wanted to find out you know, the deeper meaning of life. So it's one of those deeper um, suttas. So anyway, I will now begin. So we usually do the Namo Tassa first of all. <coughs> Namo, you can join in if you wish. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Alahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Alahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Alahato Sama Sambuddhasa so this is the ninth sutta in the Diga Nikaya, the Potapada Sutta, on the wanderer Potapada. In the time of the Buddha, that obviously not everybody was monks or nuns. There were nuns in the time of the Buddha. There were wanderers, people who weren't affiliated to any particular teacher, but would go from place to place looking for teachings. And there were female wanderers as well, even before the Buddha ordained bhikkhunis. So it was an interesting time. And it was, seemed to be, that the royalty would always like to have, uh, make merit. And so some of their places, their parks, outside of the city, they would have these little private parks and gardens, just like the old estates of the, of the wealthy people in, in Europe. They'd have it, and sometimes they'd give these parks and gardens over to wanderers or make a monastery in one of them. And they were just outside of the city so that they, the owners could actually go and visit very easily. And this uh, particular park where Potapada and his friends were staying was uh, given by one of the famous Buddhist queens, Queen Malika. So, when the Buddha was residing in the Jetavana monastery, the Jeta Grove, sometimes called an Atapindika's monastery, near Sawati, that was where the king of Kosala was, the wanderer Potapala was at the nearby debating hall in Queen Malika's park with around 300 fellow wanderers. Uh, even in those times, that various uh, different uh, teachers would come together and sometimes they would debate the truth. Instead of just one person talking, which is, sometimes happens, they sometimes would have like a, quite a vigorous Q&A, a debate between different, uh, different leaders, different teachers. So the wanderers, about 300 fellow wanderers, and it's not that much when you consider on a Friday night if this hall is packed, you can get up to 300 people in here. I don't know, what is the... Um, what is the limit, the seating limit here? Sorry? 
Three, four, seven, yeah. So we could accommodate Potapada and his wanderers and uh, the Buddha as well. So you get some idea of the number. <coughs> and it being too early for walk for alms food, so the Buddha had got up, was got his bowl and robe, instead of walking for alms food in the town, the Buddha decided to go to Queen Malika's park to visit Potapada. Meanwhile, Potapada was sitting together with his fellow wanderers, loudly talking about worldly matters. When Potapada saw the Buddha coming in the distance, he asked his fellow wanderers to be quiet. Here comes a monk, Gotama. This venerable likes quiet and praises quiet. Hopefully, if he sees that our assembly is quiet, he'll see fit to approach. So all those wanderers fell silent. When the Buddha approached, Potapada said, Come, Master, this word Bhagawa. And uh, many people know that word Bhagawa if you're old enough. That was the title which was first adopted by Rajneesh. They called him the Bhagawan. It literally means like a lord or a god, but it's a very, one of those terms which is hard to translate. So when it's really hard to translate, I just call it Master because in the Chinese tradition, they usually call all the uh, teachers, masters. Welcome, it's been a long time since you took the opportunity to come here. Please, Venerable Sir, sit down, the seat is ready. And the Buddha sat down on the appointed seat, while Potapada took a low seat and sat to one side. It's always when people are approaching a monk or some listen to a monk, they usually never sort of sit right in front. If they sit right in front, it just keeps everybody else out. And sometimes it's all about me when you sit right in front of a monk. It's always to one side. <coughs> and so I took a low seat and sat to one side. The Buddha said to him, Potapada, what were you talking about just now? And this is just the introduction and this uh, little um, subtitle here on the higher cessation of perception or consciousness. This is introducing uh, the main part of this teaching. And when he calls the highest cessation, the abbey niroda. Niroda means cessation. When you have this term abbey in a Pali, it just means, it just is an amplifier to what's coming afterwards, like a deeper, higher, more profound. And that is important to understand because every now and again you come across people discussing the abbey dhamma. The higher, the deeper, the more profound dhamma. Uh, but there's also the Abhi Niroda, there's also the Abhi Vinaya. The Vinaya is the monastic training. So what it originally meant in the time of the Buddha was like a deeper understanding of what the Vinaya was and what the Dhamma was. It was not the books which we have now in the Abhidhamma Pitaka. And the high cessation of perception the word here is the sanya, which is the third of the, the five components of existence. It's usually perception. It usually means that when we are conscious of something, we see that, or we feel that that's uh, uh, a young man and his young wife sitting next to him, or whatever. <laughs> In other words, it distinguishes. It says this is night, this is day, it's warm, it's cold. That's part of the process of sanya, giving a label, giving it a name in order for us to understand it in its context. But uh, the word sanya 
And this is obviously quite an old sutta, uh, as Venerable Jnana Tiloka in the Buddhist dictionary sort of pointed out. The only real meaning of that word which makes sense in this particular sutta is you know, the word consciousness, as we understand the word consciousness. It is true that the word consciousness is usually meant by vinyana, the fifth of the uh, five components of existence. But in the time of the Buddha, people used words loosely. They weren't lawyers. They weren't philosophers. They did not define these words so precisely. And in fact, the meaning of the word changes in its context. So the word here almost certainly refers to what you understand as consciousness rather than perception. And anyway, you can't have consciousness without perception. You can't have perception without consciousness. So the two will always work together anyway. It's what you really, really know. You say, are you conscious? Do you feel anything? How does a doctor find out if someone is still conscious or if they're dead? And shine a light into the eye, see if they can perceive that light. Shout into their ear, see if they can hear that sound, perceive that sound. So sometimes that the distinguishing between perception and consciousness may be sort of important for academics, but certainly here that distinction is not relevant and the distinction is smeared. And in this particular sutta, I have translated where others have put perception, consciousness, and again it brings the sutta more alive. So that's just some of the problems we have with translations. Finding, understanding the sutta, really getting into it, and then understanding that you have to translate in the context of how these words are used. <coughs> so, Venerable Sir, replied Potapada, what we were talking about just now is not important. Instead, recently, Venerable Sir, there was a discussion in this same debating hall on how the cessation of perception, consciousness, happens. That's the last time I used perception, now I switch to consciousness. Some said a person's consciousness arises and ceases without cause or reason. When consciousness arises, you're just conscious. When it ceases, you become unconscious. That's how some describe the cessation of consciousness. Now from that first little paragraph, it's quite clear, we're talking about the arising and ceasing of consciousness. Where there's a ceasing, there has to be an arising. So, why are you conscious? How does consciousness come into your being or your body when you are born? Is it possible for that consciousness to disappear? Why does it come back again? And in particular, the cessation of consciousness when you die. What happens to it? Is it cease with a cause or reason? And here this first is just what we usually know as a materialist. You know, you're born, you're conscious, you die, you're unconscious, and that's it. No real cause or reason, just the body just stops and that's it. Doesn't go anywhere. A person consciousness arises without cause or reason. When, which is here, when you're conscious, 
arises, you are conscious. When it ceases, you become unconscious. That's how some describe the cessation of consciousness. Others said, that's not the way it is. Consciousness is a person's permanent essence, the soul. When it enters, you become conscious. When it departs, you become unconscious. That's how some describe the cessation of consciousness. So that when you are born or in the womb, that somehow the soul comes into your womb and then you're alive. In the Christianity, the, the, the body becomes quickened. It's interesting they use the word quickened in a very old sense. That's why they have the, the old word, the quick and the dead. And the quick doesn't mean someone who's fast like Usain Bolt, it means just someone who's alive. So it's an old-fashioned word to actually say when the, uh, the, the Christian idea of a soul enters your body, then you are alive and then you die afterwards. So this is very much that idea of a soul coming into the body when it leaves, you're unconscious, you're dead. So, now the other two were always a bit weird if you use perception, but use consciousness, it seems to have an explanation. Someone else says, no way. There are holy men and women of great power and might. They insert consciousness into someone and extract it. When they insert it, you become percipient. When they extract it, you become non-percipient. That's how you describe the cessation of consciousness. And this is the idea of possession, of like beings sort of taking over your, your body and your faculties. And I don't know if you've ever seen anybody possessed. I mean, just, you know, with, with spirits and stuff. And I'm not talking about drunk. I'm not talking about on drugs. I mean, the real thing. And I've seen a few cases of that, it's very, very, very rare. And sometimes it's not dangerous, but it's weird that these things can happen. People go into trance and sometimes they channel some weird stuff. And it really is weird stuff. And it's uh, quite amazing what it can do. So they're using, what I reckon, they're using those experiences to say there are some very powerful beings who can actually put consciousness in and take, take it out of you, which shows just maybe that's where the, the lifelong consciousness comes from. And your other argues, no, there are deities of great power and might. They insert consciousness into someone and they extract it. When they insert it, you are consciousness. When they extract it, you become unconscious. That's how some describe the cessation of perception. And that would be very much, I think, a, people may correct me, a, an idea in, again, Christianity of a God, a high being, sort of making a person alive, creating them by putting consciousness into them. And when it's your time, or when God believes it's your time, they can take it out of you. Either destroy it or send it to heaven or whatever. So these are just ways of explaining the cessation of this thing we call consciousness and having either, it just arises by chance, without cause, without reason, or uh, it's a soul, not explaining where it's coming from, where it's going to, a permanent essence, and then, or it's controlled by either uh, powerful beings or gods. And the Buddha would understand the cessation of consciousness, so how does the cessation of consciousness happen? So that was what they were asking about just you know, where consciousness comes from, how it comes, how it ceases. Any questions on that? Are you already discombobulated? Um, 
That's a different place. That's where, again, the Buddha um, said, look, when uh, consciousness first manifests in the mother's womb, it's a difficult thing to, to know, but if there's no consciousness manifest at all, because sometimes in the, the fetus, it could be the mother's consciousness manifesting or it could be an independent consciousness manifesting. So sometimes it's very hard to say. But sometimes that people can, uh, again, through usually through meditation, I've never actually heard of people doing this through hypnotic regression, getting the experience in your mother's womb. And you know, they're conscious whether in the mother's womb, they can recall that, remember what it feels like. So that is, you know, shows that consciousness can exist in the mother's womb, but not too early. So for the Buddha, because it's an important part in the Vinaya, there was a young man who wanted to ordain. As a bhikkhu, a fully ordained monk, you have to be 20 years of age. And that was the rule. So 20 years of age, counting from what? Counting from birth? And the Buddha, so surprised, he said, no, from when the consciousness first arises in the, in the mother's womb. And for this fellow, I think they added an extra six months. 19 years and six months. So counting six months of consciousness in a mother's womb, not the full nine or ten months, the six months, which was interesting. So that was just put in there just as a, uh, nothing really relevant to the rule, but, not, but it's just interesting that that's how people viewed it in those days. Exactly. And I think even in Thailand when I ordained, they said, well, it could be six months, could be less, but they let you have an extra three months, I think it was, or four months. So if you're 19 years and eight months, they could say you qualify for the 20 years. And you wouldn't have to go through regression or get a holy monk to find out when it actually arose in your, in your, in your mother's womb. So, anyway. So uh, that is what they say, but there are some times here and in some very interesting cases when it looked like um, a consciousness which was not viable, sorry, uh, a body sort of died. There's a, quite a famous monk and uh, when he uh, said, you know, he remembered how he arose in this life that um, was a, he said it was a huge light. He could you know, recall very well through his deep meditation, I better not say who it is, because uh, he's still alive. He's a time monk, by the way. And he saw this really huge light, and so then he came out of that light, and he was in the body of this young boy who was being dragged out of the pool of water. And the backstory was that this young boy had been playing with his sister by the village pool and the boy had fell into the pool in the morning uh, well, they were doing some washing or something and the little sister just ran to the village to say you know, her, her baby brother had fallen into water and couldn't be found and all the men came out and they searched for him for all day they managed to find him late in the afternoon after many hours submerged and they dragged his his body by the feet to get the water out back to the village and he came too. 
He's, you know, he was uh, alive, and that was became this great monk. And he said, "That's the point, the first point he could recall." And it seems most likely that the uh, consciousness, the stream of consciousness, which was in that first uh, little boy, just passed away. But the but the body was still viable, maybe because it was cold in the bottom of the lake. That when they convert the new consciousness, found a found a viable body to take birth into. Okay, yeah. So anyway, that's... Yeah, there's some stuff goes on there. So we can't just, um, just uh, deny this. So anyway, that's some weird stuff of like consciousness coming in to the body after it was born. Anyway, so it's like a, almost like a possession, but you know, not the usual way. Okay, now where I... Oh, I've lost my page. Here we go. Okay, so this is the states of consciousness actually do arise by a cause. So the Buddha now goes off on a little tangent because a whole long argument about what consciousness is and how consciousness changes. There are different stages of consciousness. And at the same time, going once again, through these very powerful deep meditations. And I think it's important everybody knows this, and this particular sutta gives another slightly um, different, a few more extra words and descriptions on the standard formula, which helps understand exactly what these jhanas and immaterial states are. Regarding this potapada, those who say that a person's consciousness arises and ceases without cause or reason, are totally wrong. Why is that? Because conscious states arise and cease with a cause and a reason. With training, certain conscious states arise and certain consciousnesses cease. So it's not just um, by chance, you know, you train for, for consciousnesses to actually to and later on it says, to reach their peak, the summit of consciousnesses. And what is that training, said the Buddha? It's when an arahat, enlightened one, arising in this world, a Buddha, perfected, a fully awakened Buddha. And this is the, what's called the gradual training, which is dot, dot, dotted here, because hopefully you've heard this before. In fact, it was part of the word of the Buddha. And then somebody hears their Dhamma being spoken by an enlightened being, and that always has a lot of difference to when you just read it from a book. And they gain faith in the Dhamma, and when they get faith in the Dhamma, you tend to renounce you know, bad ways of living or whatever, you start keeping precepts, you know, and you, you practice restraint to the five senses, you don't indulge yourself in all sorts of stuff. And that's how they become accomplished in virtue. And seeing that the hindrances have been restrained in them, this is just dot, 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 the full gradual training you'll find in the word of the Buddha or 
in many, many places. Seeing that the hindrances have been restrained in them, joy springs up. I'm thinking you all know the five hindrances. It, three, that's 60%. Sensual desire misses the point because, yeah, the, it's the wanting, and especially the wanting which is concerned with the five senses, with the whole five sense world. Because essential desire is sometimes even, uh, it's sometimes people, well, the mind is one of the senses. So, so the, the, the uh, concern, the indulgence in the beauty of the mind, that thinks that must be something wrong. But the Buddha makes a very clear differentiation between the happiness of the sixth sense, the mind, and the other five senses. So this is, they call it karma chanda, the first of the hindrances. And the word chanda, it does mean um, approval. Uh, it does mean consent. It does mean the same thing as proxy, I consent for this. And it means that, that you approve of playing around in the world of the five senses, that you're almost stuck in there, karma chanda. And that is, and it's also sometimes called lokaya bija, which you find in the Satipatthana, but also many other places in Yanguta Nikaya. This is the abhija, which is wanting for that physical five sense world, concern for it. And that is actually the first hindrance. So you just, you know, you, you've restrained a lot of what people run about in this world. And also, you restrain some of the negativity towards this world as well. It's not just a desire, it always comes with this opposite. Just the world is the world. You know, dogs bark, people argue, just politicians lie. Just, you know, it's not just, you know, just, um, uh, giving up the desire for the world and being so negative. It's just being sort of uh, not really interested anymore in that world. That's restraining that hindrance. And also the, you know, that's also with the ill will, the negativity, the sloth and torpor and the restlessness and remorse. Interesting, never m mention much about the remorse part of the five hindrances. That's the guilt trip. And you know the guilt trip. If any of you ever felt really guilty, you feel you've done something wrong. Oh, why did I do that? I shouldn't have said that. Then sometimes people don't sleep at night. It's almost the same as restlessness. You can't have any peace with uh, when you have remorse. So restlessness and remorse is udacha and kukacha. They do really go together. And the remorse is one of the the. Uh, the special cases, but a very huge part of, of restlessness. And yet you don't, people, a lot of times people don't feel they deserve to be peaceful. And of course, the sloth and torpor, that just comes directly, you know, from the restlessness. The more restless, you get tired. You get exhausted, you get fed up and just bleh. So that restlessness and uh, remorse, sloth and torpor work together. And of course you have the, the sceptical doubt. 
Skeptical doubt is another form of restlessness. You never stayed long enough to really understand something. In other words, the old simile, you know, what's this? It's a glass. It's more than a glass. So, you know, you try and capture something and say, what if it is a glass? Is it something else? When those thoughts can never actually see, it's not still enough, not stable enough. So you just wait and wait and wait and wait to get your mind very still. And then you start to see things. And that's going beyond that doubt. And anyway, so once you have, where are we going? You've restrained the, pre, the five hindrances. You practice restrained the five hindrances. That's how they become accomplished in virtue. When those hindrances are there, can you really be accomplished in virtue? You may try to keep your precepts, but you're going to kill anybody who gets in your way when you keep the precepts. <laughs> in other words, your virtue is not really, really um, there. When the hindrances are restrained, then okay, you can do this. Uh, then, seeing the hindrances have been restrained in them, the joy springs up. And this is actually where you get some general happiness. Years ago, teaching a retreat, when I saw this, it was actually in the old um, uh, Catholic retreat centre in Penguin Road in Rockingham. And just, well, I was just between interviews, one person I finished, the other person was not coming yet, I looked out the window and it was next to a, a church. And I'll always remember these two men shaking hands after the, the morning service. And then one said to the other, I'm looking through the window at them, I could hear their speech, he said, be good. And the other one said, no, that's no fun. Ha, ha, ha. And that used to be the case, that people think that being good is like being a wowser, or having no fun in life, being boring. You know, you have to do, you know, go over the edge to have fun in life. And I remember hearing that, and this was obviously from two quite really, you know, fine people just been to church. <laughs> I don't know what the, the priest would have said if he'd have heard that. <laughs> but why is it we associate being good with not having any fun in life? And of course, hopefully, you know, you can see the monks and nuns you've associated with. You know, we keep a very high practice of virtue. And hopefully that you can see that we're we're pretty happy, happy chappies. <laughs> Interesting. So being good actually, the Buddha keeps on saying being good is a cause for happiness. So anyway, but that's uh, seeing the hindrances have been restrained. Them joy springs up, and with joy, rapture. And when the mind is full of rapture, the body becomes tranquil. When you have some joy and rapture, this pity inside of you, it's very easy to keep the body at peace. Something which you can't keep the body still through willpower. If you're having a really good time, you can sit for hours if you're having joy. And just noticing that connection to have tranquility, not through willpower, but through joy. It's a powerful little statement there, because if you don't have an experience of anything, that's weird. And when the body is tranquil, they feel bliss. Beautiful bliss. And when the mind is blissful, one enters the first jhana. 
This is the old saying, you've heard me say this so many times, and this is one place out of many where it said, Sukino jitang samadhiyati. From that bliss, that sukha, the mind gets very still. Why does it do that? It's because it's so happy, it doesn't want anything, it doesn't need anything, it doesn't move. It doesn't need to move. Oh, this is blissful. So you get very, very still. The mind is blissful. So the body vanishes. Doesn't need the body anymore. It just looks after itself. The mind is blissful. It also means the mind is energized, which means you're not in a trance, you're not asleep, you're really awake, you're blissed. So bliss is not ecstasy, it's not a dull state. It's always really energized, alive. So this is, he went to the first jhana. And he gives, now we go into the, the jhanas, having abandoned the five hindrances, this is you've abandoned, not restrained them, but they're gone. Totally free from the five senses, free from unwholesome states, free from the five senses, it's vivichehi karmehi. It doesn't say vivichehi karma sukehi, which is free from the five sense pleasures. It means free from the five senses. So it means that there is no hearing, there is no seeing, no smelling, no tasting, no physical touch. And that is actually one of the reasons I love this sutta, because little, a little extra thing here, it approves this translation. Uh, Bound to five things, totally free from the five senses and free from unwholesome states, which means the hindrances, one enters upon and abides in the first jhana wherein the mind moves onto the object, holds on to it, the object being the joy and pleasure caused by being totally free from the five senses. The idea of the joy and pleasure in these states is dependent upon some burden being abandoned, some, some uh, irritation being let go of. In the same way, that you may have been really, really sick and somebody gives you some magic bullet, an injection, and your pain vanishes. You, know, you may have this, this really, really tough pain in the body, or you've got a tummy ache, or you get some other disease and it's really tough and then somebody gives you, they see what's wrong, and they give you a pill or injection, and you're, you're energized, you're free again. So that happiness, that joy, when a long, painful experience has disappeared, this is like the pleasures of these states. The burden, the problem which has been let go of, the sickness, they call it affliction, which has been transcended, is the five senses. You're free of the five senses. And that an example of that is when people have these near-death experiences, out of the body experiences. I won't go into too much detail now, but when you, you leave your body, your five senses are shut down and people feel so much freedom, so much bliss, wonderful. Never felt so good in my life. They often report and then they come back again. Bleh. But sometimes you, you get used to the five senses, you don't think too much about them, but if once they disappear, wow, so much happiness, 
this is a happiness born of freedom from the five senses. And that is the, the joy of the first jhana. You're not floating outside your body, by the way, it's just uh, the five senses are just not on the radar anymore. Oh, okay, this is coming. That is, this whole sutra is on that question. Through courses. So this is one of the whole points of this sutta. How they come about, one thing causes another, another thing is causing... It doesn't have an origin. One thing leads to another. The whole idea of, oh, going off track a bit, the whole idea of a universe without an end. There is no such thing of that. There is no end to this universe, no beginning. Later on in the sutta, probably in two weeks' time, that will be answered in more detail. But this is the whole point, what is this consciousness? What arises? So, this is um, uh, describing a very strange state of consciousness, but a very different state of consciousness called the first jhana. Now the five sense consciousnesses that they had previously ceases. And that's why I put the part in there, karma sanya. Sanya is the perception. In this case it means the consciousness. It means the consciousness of that, those five sense in the five sense world. They call even the three worlds, the first is karma loka, the world of the five senses. And there's more worlds than that. At that time they have a subtle and true perception of the rapture and bliss born of freedom from the five senses. It's subtle but true. It's, uh, I put the party word, but it must be further down. It's called Sukuma Sacha. Sukuma means very refined consciousness, but real consciousness, not an illusion, not dreaming, subtle but real. And it's very important if, when people try and describe experiences of these jhanas, these strange states of consciousness, they are real, they're true, they're not something you imagine, even more real, but they are of a different quality, a different, different type of cloth, if you like. So they're very subtle, but real, powerful. They have a subtle and true perception of the rapture and bliss born of freedom from the five sense world. That's how with training certain states of consciousness arise and certain states of consciousness cease. And this is that training. He's pointing out that this is a totally different type of consciousness. So the consciousness is, one is ending, the five sense world consciousness, and another one is taking its place. Seeing this idea of consciousness is fragmentary. One thing is totally different to the other. So the illusion of the continuity of the same thing 
is challenged. Furthermore, when the mind no longer moves away from the object and back onto it, because it lets go of holding on to it. This is the second jhana. The first jhana, you have the bliss. It's pretty stable, but you still have not totally 100% let go. It's 99.9. In other words, not full letting go. Still holds on to it. The mind, because it's blissful. You love this. But then, because that makes it unstable, you move away, but the bliss is so so attractive, you move straight back onto it. What well, you know, using uh, modern words, the wobble of the first jhana. But in the second jhana, the difference is now the last bit of holding on, which is called the vichara, that now disappears which means you don't move away from the object anymore, there is no movement. There is the stillness of what we call samadhi, real stillness, absolute stillness, nothing moves. So, the mind no longer moves away from the object and back onto it, the object being the bliss, because it lets go of holding on to it. You enter upon the abide in the second jhana, which has trust in the object, the bliss enough to let go of holding it. To be able to let go, you need trust, a feeling of safety, a feeling that this is okay, a feeling you don't have to do anything. It's the last little bit of control, God. And that means that you have this uh, uh, unity of mind, without any movement or holding, with joy and pleasure caused by absolute stillness, samadhija. The subtle and true consciousness, I hear about my Sukhama Satchasanya, the subtle and true consciousness of the rapture and bliss born of being free from the five sense world that that had previously ceases. So the previous jhana consciousness stops. And instead, at that time, they have a subtle and true consciousness of the rapture and bliss one of absolute stillness. This is how, with training, certain states of consciousness arise and certain states of consciousness cease. It's a different state of consciousness. Furthermore, with the fading away of joy, you are mindful and fully aware, experiencing a bliss purified from joy. You enter upon abiding in the third jhana, on account of which noble ones announce, one has a pleasant abiding indeed who has such mindfulness and equanimity. The reason we put that in there is because mindfulness is still very much there. And equanimity is just pretty at peace. So, a bliss purified from joy. Sometimes it's hard to understand the difference between what they call like bliss and joy. We have all these names and sometimes we, we give them to, to uh, all sorts of worldly experiences. But of course the only way to really understand what these words really mean is through experience. And of course that means you have to uh, experience a third jhana, or at least no one, someone who has, to understand that at that jhana it's a more refined joy. 
The only simile which I managed to come up with years ago was just the difference between listening to Jimi Hendrix and listening to, I would say Tchaikovsky I mentioned earlier, or listening to, uh, what was it, Monte Verdi I used to love, or listening to the wind in the trees, or listening to absolute silence. They're different sort of pleasures of sound. One is more refined than the other. So the joy, one has a pleasant abiding health to it. The subtle and true state of consciousness of the rapture and bliss born of absolute stillness of the second jhana they had previously ceases. At that time they have a subtle and true consciousness of the bliss of contentment. Upeka being equanimity. Sometimes I look at that word and it's been really overused and opaca. You know, it literally means looking on. But it means that there's no sort of wanting. So I'm trying to experiment with new words and that word opaca call it contentment, peace. It gives it another flavour. That's how with training certain states of consciousness arise and certain consciousnesses ceases. This is the training. This is the bliss of contentment. Having abandoned pleasure and pain, all the Vedna from the five senses, the disappearance and joy and happiness, all Vedna from the sixth sense, except for equanimity. One enters upon and abides in the fourth jhana, which has only neutral mental Vedna remaining, just pure mindfulness with equanimity. At that time they have a subtle and true state of consciousness of peace. Dukkha Masukha, no happiness, no joy, just peace. That's how with certain trainings, certain states of consciousness arise and certain consciousnesses ceases. This is that training. Furthermore, having gone beyond the states of consciousness called jhana, that's the Rupa Sanya, Samadhi Kama, uh, going past. Passive is an important thing, which is not doing stuff. Not differentiating. This is like not perceiving diversity, none at like different things. So not differentiating was pretty good translation. Consciousness of a space that is without a boundary. An anta. An means you know, without. An anta means an end. Like a beginning or something which circumscribes it. Like, you no, know, consciousness, where did it come from? Where did it end from? That's giving these things boundaries, beginnings and ends. In fact, the word end, you know, is related to the word anta. You know, the anta, end, and is obviously just the same word. But, you know, the T's become D's with the, the trans, uh, transposition from Sanskrit over to the European languages. So, without end means without beginning, without boundary, without something which circumscribes it, so it can be defined. Oops. Oh, where are we going? Every time I touch this thing, lose the space. Okay. Uh, there we go, page three. One enters and Okay, one enters and remains in the mind base. I call it a mind base. This is a mental world, not a physical world, of unlimited space. 
and I call unlimited, not beginning, not an end. And that's pretty much actually how the universe is. But anyway, this is actually the, the perception one is in. Now one of the things which I pointed out in Mindfulness Bliss and Beyond, because it has no boundary, it's neither small or big, it's neither momentary or eternal, it's zero and infinity at the same time, it means that it's hard to actually to, to keep, keep existing, it vanishes. And the simile which I gave, which was hopefully something which each one of you have experienced, is the present moment awareness. So when you come into the present moment, so there's no time at all. But then hours go past, or at least you know, 10 or 15 minutes go past. Because if you're right in the present moment, if you can't measure it, it's got no beginning, no end. Often say for time, you know, you have to, it's a measurement between uh, the past and the present, or the past and the future, or the present and the future. It's a measurement, you define it. Can you imagine if you've got no measuring apparatus so into the present moment that a minute, an hour, doesn't make any sense. What is a minute anyway? What is an hour? And it's just the measurement when the mind goes off into the future on how many, oh crikey, yeah, how many minutes have I got left? <laughs> or how many minutes have gone past? And you start measuring it and it becomes sort of, it has length, duration. So this is actually where these things, present moment awareness, it's like time is disappearing. It's no time and all the time in the world. It's, it's without anta, without boundaries. It's not limits, it's not defined. And then the next thing which will always happen is it disappears. It just cannot remain in the, as an object of conscious and awareness for that long. So, that means that unlimited space, that doesn't last long, it vanishes, actually it does last long, but it vanishes. At that time they have a subtle and true consciousness of the mind base, or the states of consciousness called jhana they had previously ceased. At that time they have a subtle and true consciousness of the mind base of unlimited space. That's how with training certain states of consciousness arise and certain consciousness ceases, and this is that training. Furthermore, going totally beyond the mind base of unlimited space, consciousness, consciousness is undefined. You're still using the same word, an anta, without a boundary to it, nothing you can actually define it by, imprison it, capture it by. One enters and remains in a mind base of unfathomable consciousness. Unfathomable comes from the, the word which um, uh, sailors, how many fathoms to the, the, the bottom of the, the river or to the ocean. And that was important so they wouldn't run aground. Unfathomable was, fathoms was a measure of the depth. So I love the word unfathomable, without an end, without something to, to say it starts here or ends there. It's unfathomable. Consciousness. 
the subtle and true consciousness of the mind base of unlimited space that one had recently, had previously ceases. And that time they had a subtle and true consciousness of the mind base of unfathomable consciousness. That is how we're training certain states of consciousness arise and certain consciousnesses cease. That is that training. Furthermore, going totally beyond the mind base of unfathomable consciousness, conscious that there's nothing at all, what enters and remains in the mind base of nothingness, not even nothing, nothing of nothing. The subtle and true state of consciousness in the mind base of unfathomable consciousness they had previously ceases. And at that time they have a subtle and true consciousness of the mind base of nothingness. That's how we're training certain states of consciousness arise and certain consciousnesses cease. And this is that training. Now for those of you who know your immaterial attainments, there's one more to come, but it doesn't mention it here because that is far too refined, even for this particular discussion which the Buddha has given to Potapada, and uh, we mention that a bit later down. Potapada, when a renunciant, I call it renunciant because you have to be giving things away here. Sometimes they call it ascetic or a, a practitioner, but renunciant I think fits the bill here because you have to be willing to let things go. Experiences their own states of consciousness in such a way they proceed from one state to the next gradually, anupuba, reaching the peak, oops, there's a, a typo there, of states of consciousness. Now, that was an important thing for me to put down here, the anupuba, stage by stage by stage by stage. Because Still some people say, oh, you can skip the first jhana or the second jhana, just go to the third jhana. Or you can just go straight to the material without going through the first jhanas. This is one place where it says specifically you have to do it stage by stage by stage. One thing disappears and then you get to the next one. It's what I've tried to convey with the simile of the thousand petal lotus. All these little levels of deep meditation, one inside the other, or the babushka, the Russian dolls. Actually, you think, I don't know what, he actually, he never actually came up with this, that Chris Perrier said he was going to get me some of those to use as a, a teaching aid when I talked about these jhanas. You know, the one doll, you know, you open it up and there's another doll inside, you open it up, there's another doll inside. That's just like all these different levels of the deep meditations, one inside the others. That's word, isn't it? Babusha? Okay, I got that one right. Thank you. Anyway, so uh, that's why Anupuba, reaching the peak of states of consciousness. And like the idea of a peak, like an, an acme, it's a, a summit. Having experienced such summits of consciousness, and it's plural, they're summits, they later realize mental doing is worse. Lack of mental doing is better. This is, that's um, the best thing I can actually do there. It's like willing choosing of the mind. If I were to exercise the will, these lofty states of consciousness 
will be replaced by other coarser states of consciousness. You go down those peaks. Why don't I neither make any choice nor form any intention? They neither make a choice nor form any intention and those lofty states of consciousness cease in them and other coarser states of consciousness don't arise. The cessation of states of consciousness is reached. That potapada is how the gradual cessation of all states of consciousness occurs with wisdom. This is the whole point. They asked him about how does consciousness cease and they didn't realize he was going to go through all these incredible mind states where consciousness cessation actually happens. And I did a sort of a little uh, footnote in the middle here. In suttas such as the Atta-Ganagara Sutta in Majjhima 52, it's also in 64, but Atta-Ganagara is more full. These states of consciousness result from choice and intention. Resting on that, they attain enlightenment. So Atta-Ganagara Sutta lists again the same uh, four jhanas and the same three arupa states. And they say, resting on any one of those, a person thinks or they understand that these states of consciousness result from choice and intention. And resting on that realization, they just let go and they attain full enlightenment. So any of those states which the Buddha actually mentioned, you know, the jhanas and the arupa, any one of those is sufficient to get the full cessation experience. But the minimum requirement is the first jhana. Anyway, well now, Potapata, have you ever heard of this before? No, sir. This is how I understand what the Buddha said. That's a summary. When a renunciant experiences their own states of consciousness in such a way, they proceed from one stage to the next, gradually reaching the peak of consciousness. Having experienced the peak of consciousness, they later realize mental doing is worse for me, lack of mental doing is better. If I were to exercise the will, these lofty states of consciousness would be replaced by other coarser states of consciousness. Why don't I neither make a choice nor form an intention? They neither make a choice nor form an intention. Those lofty states of consciousness cease in them, and other coarser states of consciousness don't arise. The cessation of states of consciousness is reached. That potapada is how the gradual cessation of states of consciousness occurs with wisdom. That's what he says, it's just a potapada, the Buddha. That's right, potapada. Now, does the Buddha describe just one such peak of consciousness or many? I describe the peak of consciousness, peak of consciousness as both one and many. But how do you describe it as one peak and many? I describe many peaks of consciousness based on which, which the cessation of states of consciousness is reached. That's how I describe the peak of consciousness of both one and many. So, for some people that doesn't make any sense, but the answer was what I mentioned before, with the Atanagara Sutta, any one of those peaks of consciousness, resting on that, you can get to the, the real end of consciousness. That's why he said one of those or many of those are sufficient for the full cessation of consciousness. But sir, does consciousness arise first and then knowing? This is like jnana. It's not just wisdom. Jnana is always a very deeper understanding of just how this whole thing works. 
or does knowing arise first and then consciousness afterwards? Is there some idea and then your consciousness, conscious or conscious first and then jnana, or both arise at the same time? Conscious arises first and knowing afterwards. The arising of consciousness leads to the arising of knowing. You understand, my knowing arose from a specific condition. And that's important because the implication there is that because it arises from a condition that knowing can cease. So when consciousness ceases, so does your enlightenment wisdom. Gone. Everything. Okay, now... Uh, any questions? Are you totally discombobulated? Yes. Ah, it's because you haven't accessed the memory. So sometimes, why is it that when a person gets old, they forget people's names? Why can't we remember them? It is because, again, we're using the brain as a vehicle of our memory. But, if you can get into some deep meditation, you access the other part of memory, which is the mind, which is what people access to do regressions, and hypnosis is what people access when they get into deep meditation and they can remember this stuff. It's not lost. It's there. But we just don't know how to access it. It's just like you've got this huge bank account but you've forgotten the PIN number. You've forgotten you know, where to find the ATM. So it hasn't been lost. I think one of the reasons is why many people when they're born can remember their, their past lives. It's not encouraged a lot of times. This is actually, remember, this entitlement. If somebody's, you know, the babies are born and say, you know, oh, you're not my real mummy, you can imagine what that does to your mother and father. They just really get fed up with that. And sometimes that the, the culture in Thailand was that you'd beat the kid if they said things like that to try and make sure they never said that again. So, whew. So anyway, that's sometimes what happens. So that's why we can remember. I'm just going to go a bit further. I'm, I don't think I'm going to get all the way past this. But anyway, um, I'm just going back to page five. So soon after the Buddha left. Can we get to page five there, soon after the Buddha left? So it's forward, soon after the Buddha left. Have you got that one? On page five, I've got. It's, it's um, down, down, coming towards the end of the first part. So I just want to reassure everybody here. I hoped I would get down to this because soon after the Buddha left, he did a little bit more about the states of consciousness and the idea of a soul. Soon after the Buddha left, those wanderers reproached, sneered and jeered at Potapada from all sides, saying, whatever the monk Gotama says, Potapada agrees with him. That's so true, Master. That's so true, Holy One. As for us, we don't understand a word of the monk Gotama's whole discourse. <laughs> I just mentioned that because that might reassure a few of you at this point. So, anyway, we've got some questions from over... You've got a little... Uh, 
We'll just have a pause for a question, Rosie. I want to go on to 4.30 if that's okay, another 20 minutes. But you've got a question, maybe one question from overseas for the time being? Not really, okay. So, consciousness and the permanent essence. So this is actually going on to what they're really talking about. How does consciousness start? Does it end? Is the soul, what the heck is the soul? Venerable Sir, is consciousness a person's permanent essence, a soul, or a consciousness and a permanent essence, different things. But Pota Pada, do you believe in a permanent essence? Atta. I believe in a physical permanent essence, Venerable Sir, which is bodily, made up of the four primary elements and consumes soddy food. Suppose there was such a physical permanent essence, potapada. In that case, consciousness would be one thing and such a physical permanent essence another. While such a physical permanent essence remains, some states of consciousness arise in them and others cease. This is referring to consciousness ceasing, one jhana to another jhana, immaterial states. You can actually see in totally different states of consciousness. So, that states of consciousness cannot be um, the permanent essence. Kind of, so the states of consciousness and the body can't be the same. When that, while such a physical permanent essence remains, some states of consciousness arise in them and others cease. Something that is changing cannot be identical to a permanent unchanging essence. That is the way to understand how states of consciousness are different from a soul, a permanent essence. So I believe in a mind-made permanent essence with all the limbs and sense faculties. This is the, you know, the out-of-body experiences where people can actually see and hear. And if anybody sees the ghost or such a being, they look as if they've got their hands and their head and everything else. They look just human. Suppose there were a mind, such a mind-made permanent essence potapada. In that case, consciousness would be one thing, the permanent essence another. While such a mind-made permanent essence remains, some states of consciousness arise in them and others cease. Again, something that is changing cannot be identical to a permanent essence. That too is a way to understand how states of consciousness are different from a permanent essence. Okay, I believe in a non-physical permanent essence which is made of perception. Suppose there was such a non-physical permanent essence, Potapada, in that case consciousness would be one thing, the permanent essence another, while such a mind-made permanent essence remains, some states of consciousness arise in them and others cease. That too is a way to understand how states of consciousness are different from a permanent essence. Your consciousness, and make a point here, states of consciousness, totally different. But Venerable Sir, Am I able to know whether consciousness is a person's permanent essence or whether consciousness and the permanent essence are different things? Poor old Potapada is a bit confused. And the Buddha replies, it's hard for you to understand this since you have a different view, creed, belief, practice and tradition. Well, if that's the case, sir, then is this right? The universe is eternal. This is the only truth, anything else is wrong. This has not been declared by me, Potapada. Then is this right? The universe is not eternal. This is the only truth, anything else is wrong. This too has not been declared by me. Then is this right? The universe is finite. The universe is infinite. 
The soul and the body are the same thing. The soul and the body are different things. An enlightened one exists after death. An enlightened one doesn't exist after death. An enlightened one both exists and doesn't exist after death. An enlightened one neither exists nor doesn't exist after death. This is the only truth, anything else is wrong. This too has not been declared by me. Oh, why haven't these things been declared by the Buddha? Because they're not beneficial or relevant to the essential of the spiritual life. They don't lead to repulsion, this nibbida. I call that samsara's ejection seat. Repels you. You've got no choice, you get bounced off. Fading away, cessation, peace, insight, awakening, extinguishing. That's why I haven't declared them. Then what has been declared by the Buddha? I've declared this. This is suffering, origin of suffering, cessation of suffering. This is the practice of these, the cessation of suffering. Why have these things been declared by the Buddha? Because they are beneficial and relevant to the essential of the holy life, the spiritual life. They lead to repulsion. Now who want to exist? More suffering. You get repulsed by it after a while. Fed up, you had enough. Just get out of here. Fading away. Cessation, peace, insight, awakening, extinguishment. That's why I've declared them. That's so true, Master. That's so true, Holy One, Sukato. Now is the time, Venerable Sir, to do as he sees fits. Then the Buddha got up from his seat and left. Actually, I managed to get this paragraph. So here we go again. Soon after the Buddha left, those wanderers reproached, sneered and jeered Potapada from all sides, saying, eh, whatever the monk Gotama says, Potapada agrees with him. That's so true, Master, that's so true, Holy One. Oh, crikey. As for us, we don't understand a word of the monk Gotama's whole discourse. And he never answered the question whether the universe is eternal or not, finite or infinite, and so on. Potapada said to them, I too understand that the monk Gotama didn't make any definite pronouncements at all regarding whether the universe is eternal and so on. Nevertheless, the practice that he describes is true, real and accurate. Every step made sense in accordance to natural principles, according to Dhamma. So how could a reasonable person such as I not agree with what was well spoken by the by the monk Gotama was in fact well spoken. So it was reasonable, it was logical, it took him to places he didn't know and it was weird but he could at least get a grip that this was according to natural principles and reasonable. That's why he agreed with the monk Gotama. Which finishes part one of the Potapada Sutta. Part two comes in two weeks time where we find out who did it <laughs> like Agatha Christie Knoll okay so are there any are there any um, uh, questions from the floor yeah okay do you want to use the uh, uh, yeah a friend of ours passed away in the UK and his wife has written to us and said that it was wonderful all the family were around the bedside and he passed away very peaceful. And I was thinking, would he have gone through, like you just mentioned, the jhana stages really? There would be a wobbling first maybe and then those stages? That would be hard for us to know because 
it was his mind state afterwards. So certainly that one his five senses shut down. And it's they shut down slowly, little by little, as the brain starts to maintain the major organs and then everything shuts down. And it's usually at that point where the brain um, stops functioning that the person experiences the near-death experience. The, well in this case it's not near-death, it's right there, entering uh, the, that process of floating up out of the body and seeing people. It really depends. Because sometimes that when a person who's dead sees everybody, sometimes he can get very upset or sometimes the emotions of the people around can affect you know, that stream of consciousness when it's just left the body. Which is really important that we don't say, oh don't leave me, stay with me, because that causes a lot of stress. As it would you know, even now, if you saw somebody who was very, very sick, come and stay with me. We're putting pressure on somebody. So it's wonderful if everyone was peaceful and let this sort of relation go and they actually passed away in, a, in an accepting, safe, peaceful, loving little moments. I that was thinking of the, it would be like letting go, we'd get that feeling of letting go, I've had enough. Yeah, so that would letting go of the body and see what happens next. So usually afterwards people go to that light. And you know that when they go to that light, the the one of the examples of that because you know I saw it on a little interview on video is that Anita Moria G or something who had a very bad cancer and just left her body and you know described her experience going into this incredibly beautiful, blissful, peaceful light, pure love. And you know, she described it from her uh, spiritual beliefs. It's like being with God, pure love. Now you can understand in that sort of situation if we've ever experienced that first jhana, that's no bliss, pure love, that would actually just uh, fit the bill because you're struggling to describe what these experiences are after you've left. And of course, you know, that's the sort of uh, the way you'd use you know, those, uh, your vocabulary depending on your culture and your religion, that's how you describe it. And it was a case of the, um, the that's probably what she would have felt, and that would have been like a first jhana. Uh, that Anita sort of decided to come back, come out and come back again. But anyway, these are little things which you can't really say, but sometimes that people get attracted towards that light and would just get scared or get sort of too, too, too wobbly and will come out afterwards. So this is one of the reasons why even if you think that all these teachings are way beyond you, some people feel like that, it doesn't matter because it's great they're out there and when they're out there, when it happens when you die you have a much better idea of what's going on and what to do and what not to do. Even when I was in Melbourne, this Christian guy came to one of my talks and he said, I don't know what tradition he was in, I was following some teachings of uh, St. Francis, no, no, St. John of the Cross. And that there is a good chance that, you know, that, that St. John of the Cross was at least getting pretty close to a jhana. 
if not in the first jhana, but he was suggesting that once he just uh, doing some Christian meditation, that he got into this incredible, beautiful light, the greatest bliss in the whole world he's ever experienced. He didn't know what it was. And somebody told him about my book, Mindfulness, Bliss and Beyond, which describes those nimittas in quite detail, so he had to come and see me. So, people experience these things. And they really want to know exactly what it is. And so it could be. You have a great chance then. Yeah, Thomas. Why is there so much emphasis on the the visual? Aren't we following the feeling in those on states? The, on the visual, like you're saying, you're talking about the light. But the visual. Well, there's one reason why that these things, you know, in Nepali are called rupa jhana. The rupa jhana. Rupa is like the object of sight, visual. And you know, it always wonders well, why are they calling it rupa jhana when the body, the five senses have totally vanished. And it is because uh, much of our, of our sensory experience is actually dominated by sight. When you have go through the customs at airports, or not the customs, their passport control. They have facial recognition, sight. I don't know why this is, but you know, I'm, I'm going off to Thailand on Wednesday morning. Every time, which, you know, I travel a lot. Every time I go through Perth Airport and put my passport into the, you know, the, um, what's it called, the, f the, the, the quick, you know, e-pass, it always rejected. And I always have to go to the, you know, the guy. The point, I don't even try that fasting. Coming back in, easy. I think it is because they might not want me to go, but they're very happy that when I come back. <laughs> no, no, I take the glasses off. You know. Yeah, exactly, yeah, no. I've done that, take the, take the glasses off. Don't smile, just you know, keep it as. It works on the way in, but never on the way out. No. I don't know about... It's been 25 times now that's happened, so I just don't forget about it. But anyway, you can see the facial recognition, visual, it's how you recognize us. You don't recognize me by how I make you feel. Or my smell, I hope. <laughs> Dogs do that though, and babies, they sniffing recognize you, but human beings are very visual. Which is one of the reasons why it's one of the, if not the most dominant sense. So, when we have our houses, we don't really, you know, if we, actually people actually do this, whenever they're selling a house, they say, Eddie tells me, they don't just paint it up, make it look smart, but they actually just maybe cook a dinner or something, make it feel like homely, you know, and just keep that smell in the house. And it feels, oh, this, is, this smells really good. And that makes it attractive or whatever. And apparently that's what they do over in supermarkets or something, they put smells there through the air con. You know, some psychology which smells make you want to buy things and which smells want you turn you off. But we're mostly a visual, visual person. So because of that, when you know, we experience those, those deep meditations, the visual one is one of the first ones which is really strong. 
So in Nimitta land, usually we experience it as it's not a light, but that's how we interpret it. What are you actually following in those states? What is your reference point? Your reference point is the present moment, the experience happening now. You're not following anything, you're just being. Stillness is just means you're not going anywhere. All these little sayings, you're not getting anywhere, yes, at last. <laughs> Th that's why is it, it's more of a feeling once the body, once you let go of the body, it's a feeling. Well, it's, again, feeling is, again, a word which can be an emotional, my feelings, my feelings are hurt, but it's also the word thing which we've used for, you know, how you feel, can you feel this? It can be a physical feeling. The idea of feeling is just such a sort of a wide, imprecise word. So that's like with Vedana, we usually use it for feelings, Vedana. That's the, the uh, second of the uh, five components of existence, but that's just too, too, uh, too imprecise. So I've called Vedana experience and used feelings for emotions. But when we get to these deep states of, of mind, the jhanas, yeah, I mean, the bliss, ecstasy, pity, sukha, yeah, they are feelings. But before you have those, you know, that light, the nimitta, that you know, is mostly seen by nearly everybody, uh, certainly in near-death experiences, has this incredible light. You go to the light. I, I don't know if I've, I've heard anyone, I'm sure there must be, people that go to the feeling when they pass away. And I think that's also you know, why the Buddha calls it rupa jhana. Rupa is like an object of the, 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 uh, of sight. That's that's where it comes from. That's where the nimittas. Obviously, that visual object vanished in the jhanas. In the jhanas, it is can't really call it a feeling, just bliss. Because different than the feelings you have when you're really happy in the body. I don't know if that answers your question or what. Sort of. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> yes, John. Um, just a couple of questions in one. Um, when you, for at the time of death to see the, the nimitta of the light, you'd have to have good virtue, wouldn't you? A person who dying didn't have any virtue, would, would they still see the nimitta? That's an interesting question, whether they'd be drawn towards the light or whether they'd be so anxious and so afraid, because I know that, that those people who are really devout sort of Christians or Muslims, who really do believe that, you know, this is it, your only life. I don't know if you've ever done an exam and you can only take it once. You know, how anxious are people, even kids doing NAPLAN tests, Kids doing year 12, so over in Melbourne, VCEs. So people get stressed out at that. But you know, this is, you know, you can always do it again. It's not the end of the world if you fail your, your year 12. But it is pretty much the end of happiness if you fail 
the, you know, when you're dead in, in those, those religions, it's uh, you go to hell or you go to heaven. I mean, that's pretty heavy duty exam. So, would you think people be anxious when they pass away? Have you ever anxious if you've got a test tomorrow? And this is the biggest test you'll ever have, according to that philosophy. So it'd be very hard. How many people would be so, so um, virtuous that at the end of their life there's nothing wrong they haven't done, no mistake they've made. So because of that, even, even in the airport, you know, when you see that people just, you know, with their bags, when they used to, to um, they try and get through because, oh, well, maybe there's something in there which I haven't got, you know, I shouldn't have through the customs, and they say, please come this way, madam. <laughs> you don't know that they might find something wrong there. So because of that, there's a huge amount of anxiety for some people. If they do believe like in a, like a compassionate um, get out of hell clause, you know, there may be, you know, just, or the idea in Catholicism of like a limbo. Oh yeah, you know, you just haven't been a good person, but just, you know, going, not limbo, purgatory. So, you know, but you know, it's, so in other words, you can always do the exam later, just in a few years in purgatory, they can go to heaven and be happy ever after. But for some people, hell forever and damnation. If that is one of the consequences, that will make you so anxious when you die. So that's why like forgiveness and love is so really important. And if you get that, you know, compassion, forgiveness, then that would really help. So a person who dies, they haven't been the most virtuous person, but it's good enough. And then they won't be so anxious, and then maybe they can allow that light to come. Like even in, you know, I've told all these stories that some people they get nimittas, but they can't get the jhanas, or even nimittas they don't stay. Why? And it's not that they haven't got all the information and the skills, but they think they don't deserve such happiness. This terrible Western disease of thinking we're not good enough which is sometimes exaggerated with some religions. You're a sinner, John. You've renounced Jesus. You're going to go to hell. And some people believe that. Sinner. And because of that, you know, that sort of means they feel they're not good enough. Which means they block anonymity even in this life, let alone when they die. And um, just the second part. Is uh, the nimitta reflection of the mind? And you go to it <coughs> at the time of death. What happens after you go into it? What, what's the following? And that's interesting. If you go into a nimitta when you die, it depends whether you know you can actually maintain that, or you can go deeper into it, into a jhana. If you go into a jhana, well, you're going to sort of be in there for a long, long time. I know some teachers say. Oh, but then, you know, you miss the opportunity, you'll be in there for eons and you'll miss the next Maitreya Buddha when he comes because you're just happy in this jhana realm. But that misses the point. 
if you've been into such a beautiful state for such a long time, when you come back into, say, this realm of existence, you obviously just have some incredible meditative powers. Very special human being. So it'd be pretty easy to get back into those jhanas again. So you, you don't miss out by by getting into a jhana realm afterwards. And it shows that you've got a very you know, lovely mind which can let go. And that will just be with you in the next life. So, so you enter, the, enter into the light and then you take up your meditation practices as you would normally, is that what you mean? No, you couldn't. Because that's too still. You can't do anything. If you start moving, making decisions, then you just come out. Just like in this, this uh, what we have now. It's one of the reasons those people who have near-death experience, they don't stay very long. Beautiful experience, but they, they don't know how to handle stillness. Don't know how to let go. But the nice thing is, if you are a stream winner, you know there's no one in here, you know the will is not part of you, so you, know, you just can let the will go, so you have much more ability to let things go. And if you go into when you pass away, you, <coughs> you see a nice nimitta and go into it, you become what is called the jhananagami. It's like it's instant promotion from being a stream winner to an, a, to an anagami. So you go into that jhana realm for eons, and when that fades away, so do you. You're gone. You're enlightened called the jhana non-returner. Stream winner, at death, get into a jhana, and then you're gone. Go out, blist out for a few eons, and when that fades, you fade too. No more John. That's what I read that, that's really interesting, just the way the whole thing works. If you practice it, it gets more easy to understand the closer you get. And remember just, I think when I was about just one year away from O-levels, I remember I, someone passed me uh, the chemistry O-level paper. And you know, I knew that in about 15 months I'd have to take something like this. I couldn't understand a word of it. But, he said, oh, don't worry about that. You just keep on going. And then soon you could understand it and pass it. So, this is, never feel, oh, this is way above me. Because this is why, I don't mind teaching it. Some people do understand it. Other people, you know, that you don't understand it now, but later on you do. This is what with Ajahn Chah, some of the stuff he said when I first became a monk was just gobbledygook. And, but weird, it stayed with me. And subconscious, I remembered it. And when I did have an experience, a deep experience, wow, now I knew what to do. So, the knowledge, the experience, 
doesn't just happen immediately. You plant seeds. And it's amazing just how, when it's ready, those teachings come up and they help enormously. And never underestimate yourself. Sometimes just some of the teachings, just the letting go, letting things be. Sometimes uh, you'd never feel this could happen to you and you're just sitting there just like sometimes people say just killing time, nothing to do, giving up and then things start to happen. The weirdest times when you least expect it, you're just sitting here and just, oh come on, this can't be happening to me. And because of what you heard here, you know what to do. Still remember this girl over in Penang. That she wasn't even on my retreat. I don't know if she was even a Buddhist. I think she probably was afterwards. But friends there said, can you talk to her because you know, she's got some psychosis and no, no one's been able to, to really help her. So, okay, I'll give it a go. And she came in, what happened? And she described her experience. And she just, she just entered the jhana just by fluking it. She went into this big light and just really blissed out. And when she came, she said, no, what the hell was that? And it concerned her so much that she went to psychologists and, and psychiatrists even. They couldn't understand a word of what was going on. When it came to me, there's one thing I wish I did know about. Oh yeah, that was a jhana. We're talking about. I said, "Well, this is also what happened." It's, yes, you know what it is when someone actually understands you and they get it. They've been there and and they know things you haven't told them because they know that territory. And she was so happy afterwards, and that was the end of her problem. So sometimes it's nice to put this out there. You know, you may come across a person who's had those beautiful lights. What's going on? Am I going crazy? Am I going mad? So I just, you know, there's some guys over in Serpentine who, who are just pretty experts in this. So you go and tell them, and one day that person will be you. Surprising just how many people have those experiences. Even they're not even Buddhists, and they just, just like saying in Melbourne, this guy had his beautiful limitations and know what the hell was going on. Yeah. Um, so, when someone actually entered jhana, and then either they know it or they don't know it, and after the clarification that actually jhana, they return back to the normal state. Does that person, does that person's behavior actually change completely in terms of? It doesn't change completely, but change do, does happen. People do have what they call like spiritual experiences. You know, feelings of contentment, feelings of peace, feelings of like everything's right in the world. And sometimes the weirdest occasion, I remember this one fellow a long time ago, he was working in the mines up in, in the north. And his job was to do the, the explosions. So he would always do a night shift just go there when no one else was on the bottom of the mine. This was a long time ago before great technology. And that when he, he 
started to drill the holes and put the explosives in. He'd only just started his shift late at night and he heard the sound of something rumbling towards him. It was one of the ore trucks you know, on the rails and one of his friends had forgot to put the brakes on. And it was rolling towards him on the end of the, the, the tunnel, the end of the shaft. And he knew just there was no escape. And just, he was running towards him. The, the tunnel was too, too narrow to avoid anything. Only thing he could do was to jump up. And he jumped up when the, the metal heavy, um, whatever it was, hit him. And you know, enormous pain and he found it severed both legs. But, he said, you know, despite that pain, you know, and he had this amazing spiritual experience. You know, it, he was actually at peace and joy and bliss. There was so much pain he had to let go. These are some weird experiences. And apparently what happened later on, he was, you know, when they found him, so he was, you know, he was alive, so they took him to hospital, and, you know, when he was being treated, the fellow who was responsible left the, the, um, left the brakes off. You know, he just had to come and see his friend to apologize. He just came into the entrance of the ward and saw him, and was so scared and remorseful seeing his mate without his legs. His mate shouted out, it's okay, I'm fine. Thank you for what you did. And that just made things worse and the fellow ran away and never came back. Because the fellow couldn't understand just how, you know, causing the legs to be severed. You know, I can't say this, but this is apparently what the person said. It's one of the best things which ever happened to him. Spirituality. Just the, the understanding what he got from that was just so powerful. That's what he said. Weird. But sometimes these things happen in the most unusual situations. Leaving your body, blissing out. So it can happen to you. Nice to know. But that's, if you haven't got jhana yet, don't try that technique. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like, there's much easier ways. <laughs> okay, okay, it's 4.45 now, so I've gone over time, and you have things to do, I have things to do, so pay respects to the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha now. And part two is coming in two weeks' time. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Ahang Sama Sambodo Bagawa Bodang Bagawantang Abiwa Demi Suakato Bagawata Damo Damanamasami Supati Pano Bhagavato Sawaka Sango Sangang Namami